So, happy Easter. It's good to see you. Now, I want to start with something that might surprise you a little bit. In December 2004, a massive tsunami came crashing into the coasts around the rim of the Indian Ocean. You guys remember this? Over 250,000 people were killed in this natural disaster. And in the aftermath of such destruction, letters and articles began filling newspapers and magazines all over the world asking the question, where was God? I think it's a fair question to ask. The New York Observer uh, was quoted with this headline, Disaster Ignites Debate. Was God in the Tsunami? One reporter wrote, if God is good, oh, if God is God, he's not good. If God is good, he's not God. You can't have it both ways, especially after a tragedy like the Indian Ocean catastrophe. Or as Hillary, an undergrad English major, puts it in Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God, quote, I just don't believe that the God of Christianity exists. God allows terrible suffering in the world. So he might either be all-powerful, but not good enough to end evil and suffering, or else he might be all-good, but not powerful enough to end all evil and suffering. Either way, the all-good, all-powerful God of the Bible couldn't exist. Rob, Hillary's boyfriend, had another thought. And this may be where most of us really live. He says, this isn't a philosophical issue to me. This is personal. I won't believe in a God who allows suffering, even if he, she, or it exists. Maybe God exists, maybe not, but if he does, he can't be trusted. Now, no matter what you believe about God, where you're coming from this morning, what you think about the nature of the universe, the existence of God, or the problem of pain, pain and suffering is hard to understand. But for most of us, this is much more than some philosophical question. It's an intensely personal question. Many of us have suffered through pain. You know, maybe you lost a loved one. And maybe you lost him or her without warning. Maybe a child, a sibling, or a parent. Maybe you survived an intense relational breakup. Maybe even the end of your marriage or a parent's divorce. Maybe you or someone close to you is currently suffering through debilitating illness. And pain is very real to you. Maybe you personally have suffered abuse or someone close to you, mental, physical, sexual. You know, in these times, it's common to ask the question, where was God? And to question even the existence of an all-powerful and good being. And to be honest, this is a tough question for people of faith to answer. There are no simple answers that will fit everything neatly into a prim and proper box. And right now, you might be thinking, hey, wait a minute. This is Easter Sunday, Brad. We're supposed to be celebrating the resurrection, not talking about suffering. And I would say, yes, we are supposed to be celebrating the resurrection. And yes, we are going to. And I think even now in talking about this, we're celebrating the resurrection because in order to understand the resurrection, In order to fully appreciate Resurrection Sunday, you have to understand Good Friday. Because there's no resurrection unless something dies. And how do we make sense of that? Where do we find God on Good Friday? 
And so today, we are going to take a look at some difficult, tough subjects. I'll talk a little bit about suffering so that when we celebrate the resurrection, we understand more fully what we're celebrating. So it's not just a time to be happy, happy, joy, joy, but it's time to feel a depth of joy and thanksgiving that I think is much more powerful. So you with me on this? A little different? You going to follow with me on this? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Someone's like, yeah, that's good. Because one thing I'm starting to learn is that one of the secrets to a really fulfilled, joyful, joyous life is finding God all around you all the time. So today we're going to look at finding God when there's reason to doubt him, because that is everything leading up to Resurrection Sunday. All the people following Jesus left him. His closest disciples abandoned him. It was a great time of doubt leading up to the moment we celebrate this morning. Let's read the story about a very famous resurrection in the life of Jesus, but not his own. This is John chapter 11. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. This is a little bit of a longer story, but it's worth it. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and his sister Martha. And if you look in your bulletin, it's so long we had to edit out parts of it. So as I'm reading along, you may not have everything that I have, but this will fill in some details for you. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. And when he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you're going back? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Those who walk in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by the world's light. It's when the people walk at night that they stumble, for they have no light. And after he said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. And his disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. And Jesus had been speaking of his death, but the disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. And then Thomas, also known as Didymus, always one for a fun comment, said to the rest of the disciples, let's also go so that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had, always been, had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. And when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you're the Messiah, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. And after she said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. I'm going to skip ahead just a little bit. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? 
Jesus, once more, deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, by this time there's a bad odor, for he's been in there four days. Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you'll see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you. You've heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. So, quite a story. You know, one of the things that's so troubling in times of loss is that they can often seem so random and we can't make sense of them. You know, why would this happen to me? Why would this happen to my friend? Why would this happen to these innocent people? And some thinkers have even called this an idea of pointless evil. J.L. Mackey is one of those folks. He wrote in his book, The Miracle of Theism, an argument that goes like this. If a good and powerful God exists, he would not allow pointless evil. But because there is much unjustifiable, pointless evil in the world, the traditional good and powerful God could not exist. Some other God or no God may exist, but not the traditional God. But our scripture today suggests another perspective entirely. And that is this, that there is a bigger picture that's good. It's clear from the action of the story that Jesus is aware of something bigger that's happening here that no one else is cluing into. Did you pick up on that? In verse 11, says, After he said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. And his disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. And Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Now what Jesus sees and knows that no one else does is that Lazarus is going to be raised back to life. In two or three different ways in this passage, it indicates that Jesus, A, knows that he's dead, and B, knows that it's temporary. He calls him asleep. He says he's going to be raised to life. There's going to be a happy ending. And this is an indicator of a big theological idea that we see in Romans 8, verse 28, that many of you have heard before. It's this, for we know that in all things... God works for the good of those who love him. Now, this idea, I think it's fair to say, is one that can be thrown around pretty casually. But nonetheless, it's an important perspective. The perspective here is that God doesn't cause evil or suffering, but rather that none of it is allowed to remain or exist randomly. He works through it all to bring about good in the world. He redeems it. Now, the difficult thing for the disciples and the loved ones of Jesus, or loved ones of Lazarus, is that they have no way of knowing that God is actually working through this entire painful episode to work an amazing miracle. They have no idea. And as scholars have pointed out, perhaps the problem with Mackey's argument is that tucked away within the proposition that the world is full of pointless evil is a hidden premise that it's based on, namely that if evil appears pointless to me, then it must be pointless. But what if we can't see the whole picture? 
And if we use this approach to discredit faith in a good God, we run the risk of instead placing enormous faith in our own cognitive abilities. And Keller has said that this is a blind faith of high order. But beyond this, the action of the story suggests not only that God has a good plan, but that sometimes, sometimes, God sometimes allows pain and struggle to bless us. Now, this doesn't mean that we have to fit all pain and all suffering into this category, but sometimes it's true. Now, to understand this, I think it's helpful to understand the relationship that Jesus has with Lazarus. So, again and again, both with Lazarus and his two sisters, we learn that Jesus loves them. In verse 5, it says he loved them. And when the sisters send for Jesus to heal Lazarus, Lazarus, they say, the one you love, Lazarus, is sick. And verse 2 alludes to the fact that Mary is the one who poured perfume on Jesus' feet and then wiped it off with her hair. A very, very intimate, close, uh, vulnerable action, a connecting move. Jesus is recorded many times throughout the scripture as staying at Mary and Martha and Lazarus' home. They were his good, close, intimate friends, friends that he loved. Yet in verse 5, it says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sisters and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, Let's go to Judea. Why would Jesus let his good, intimate friends, whom he loves, suffer with Lazarus' illness and death for two extra days? If he could have gone there earlier and ended their pain sooner, why does God sometimes seem to delay when we're in pain? Now, this is a very easy theology to preach, but it's a hard theology to live out. It seems to me that what we can take from this scenario is that the pain was serving a purpose that would ultimately, in the big picture, enrich the lives of those who are suffering. And Jesus hints at this when he says in verse 14, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. The idea here is that there is some good that will come from the pain of the situation that would not have come if Jesus had prevented the pain. Now, there's a big idea. There's an uncomfortable idea. That's an idea that's not easier to be taken just lightly and say, oh, okay, fine. And if you've experienced some significant pain in your life, you can't do that. You can't just like, oh, sure, okay. You know, a few years ago, Beck and I had a chance to go on a vacation, and we went to wine country. Um, I know you're thinking, Brad, you went to wine country? You know, you're not that cool or smooth. <laughs> but, you know, I ride on Becca's coattails through most of my life. So we went to wine country, Sonoma, and what's the other one called? What? Napa. Napa. Yeah, that's the fancier one, right? So we went through, and we were tasting, and we met people, and we met a lot of people who had their own wineries and who blogged about it. And one of those guys wrote this, which I thought was interesting. This was Nick. He was a Bordeaux merchant. He blogged, it's now common knowledge and common practice that vines pushed to the edge of their tolerance for many environmental factors generally tend to make better wine, more concentrated, more complex, more tasty. 
A drought or mineral-stressed vine can produce grapes with a greater intensity of flavor, and sometimes stressed plants will push on a burst of growth, providing higher yield. The idea here is that grapes and vines that are stressed make sweeter, tastier, richer, fuller wines. There's more flavor. Their experience, their existence is deeper. It's richer. I learned going to a conference once of these things called flavonoids. You ever heard of them? This is a real thing. I'm not making this. Flavonoids. It was a guy. His name is uh, um, Dixon Despomier uh, from Columbia University. And he does this big things with vertical farms where he's trying to grow things without soil and hydroponically and all kinds of cool things. But he, he said, you know, have you ever wondered why hothouse tomatoes taste so bad? They taste so bad because the conditions are perfect all the time. And they don't produce flavonoids, which are real. They give things the flavor that we enjoy. So now when they grow things in hothouses, they try and stress them out a little bit so that they'll taste better. They'll be richer, fuller. You know, if you have a God, Keller said this too, great and transcendent enough to be mad at because he hasn't stopped evil and suffering in the world, then you have, at the same time, a God great and transcendent enough to have good reasons for allowing it to continue that you can't know. Indeed, you can't have it both ways. And so, philosophically, I think that's a very good argument to make. But personally, I'm not sure that feels very good. And in fact, I think it can sound a little bit like a cop-out. And you may be wondering, wait a minute, God allows bad, happen, bad to happen for a greater good. How convenient for him. We suffer. He's glorified. That sounds a little bit sadistic to me. Like God is some big puppet master pulling the strings, getting all the glory while we pay the price. No thanks. Well, if that's what you're thinking, I totally get that. And I think if that's all this story was, that wouldn't be very satisfying to me either. But there's something that happens in this story that I feel like makes all the difference in the world. And it illustrates this, that God is in it with us. He's not separate from this. It's not like, like, oh, well, you suffer, I get glorified. The picture is very different. The picture is this, even when he has the opportunity to avoid the mess of suffering He chooses to involve himself. So you notice in this story that Jesus goes to where Lazarus is. There are other stories where Jesus just says a word from hundreds of miles away and someone gets healed in another town. So Jesus could have done that. He could have just hung out where he was, not gone to Judea at all. But they travel to go there. And this is key too. He's not ambivalent or ho-hum to the existence of suffering or evil in the world. In verse 33, it says, When he saw her weeping, and the Jews who'd come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. In verse 38, Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. Deeply moved is an interesting phrase. In the ancient Greek, it literally means to snort like a horse. 
to snort like a horse. That's what it means. And it implies anger and indignation. So Jesus here is angry at death, angry at the existence of suffering, angry that things like this happen. And what this seems to indicate is that while God may allow or use evil and suffering and injustice, he doesn't like them one bit. He's not ambivalent. He's not shrugging his shoulders. There's no, oh, well, that's just the way it has to be, I guess. And instead, he involves himself in the stories of our suffering. He dives in. He relates to our suffering firsthand. Now, maybe some of you noticed and were struck by two words. Verse 35, the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. Now, think about this. Here's Jesus. He's already told his disciples, look, this is going to have a happy ending. He said, he's asleep, or I'm going to raise him from the dead. Don't, don't sweat it. Let's just chill out for two. He knows what's going to happen. Yet, he weeps. But not because Lazarus is dead, because five minutes later, Lazarus isn't going to be dead. He weeps because of the pain that Mary feels. He weeps because of the pain that her friends and her sister and her family are feeling in that moment. This is the God of the Bible. It's not neat or simple or trite. This is not a puppet master God who stayed on the sidelines. This is a God who saw the suffering that we've created in the world and took action to put things right. It's a God who does not avoid our suffering, who dives into it, who's not apathetic about the existence of evil or okay with it, and who weeps with us, weeps with us as we suffer. In short, this is the God of the cross. This is the God of Good Friday. A God who, to end injustice, to end suffering, to end evil, experienced them all firsthand. Not through some crazy God way that he's omnipotent and all-powerful so he can understand or experience evil because he's God. He understands and experiences evil because he experienced it on his back. He walked through it. He was betrayed by those he loved. He was tortured, beaten, oppressed, discounted. He was a minority in an oppressed land. He was no stranger to sorrows. And this is what we see in his interaction with Martha. I don't know if you notice this, but right in the middle of her suffering, Jesus points Martha to himself as a source of renewal. Do you see that? He says, Jesus said to her, I'm the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said, yes, Lord. Now, this may seem like kind of an odd time to bring this up. Sort of an odd time to make this big claim. But times of suffering are sometimes the times when we're most in touch with our need. They're times when we also examine the things in our life that we turn to to sustain us, as if they're the power in the resurrection. 
as if they can empower our lives. So times of suffering, times of doubt, when those things aren't working, can actually be times when faith is born or strengthened. Not as a crutch, but as an experienced reality when other things that we've been using as crutches are breaking down. And faith is this. It's not that if I trust in God, I'll be protected from all evil and all pain. That's not faith. It's that, I, it's that if I trust in God when evil touches my life, he will redeem that pain through the power of resurrection. And that was Jesus' story and why we celebrate his resurrection today. You know, he did everything right, yet evil put him to death. But death could not hold him. He conquered death and turned pain and suffering on its ear. New creation was born. New life broke out into the world. Renewal started happening. He conquered death. And this is our hope. This is our song. This is why we celebrate the resurrection. Because it points to the redemption of the pain and suffering, not just in the world, but in your life, in my life. The mistakes that you made can be turned around. Life can be sweeter, richer, deeper, fuller because of the resurrection of Jesus, which offers new life and redemption to all the pain, suffering, mistakes, sin, whatever is in your life that you've experienced personally because of what you've done, what society's done to you, people who've broken your heart, that can be flipped. That's why the resurrection's important. The resurrection is so much more powerful if we understand Good Friday. It's not a time to forget It's a time to celebrate what can happen, what's available to us, what God is up to in the world. And this is our story. New life is more than worth the pain. And this is what we see. This is what Easter is about. And it can't happen without Good Friday. But its effects turn even the pain of death into new life. Thank God Jesus is alive. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for not staying at a distance. Thank you for diving into our world, into all the good things, yes, but into the dark things as well. Thank you for being a man acquainted with many sorrows. Thank you for being the one who was pierced. And thank you for being the one who overcame death to take away its sting, to birth in us new life, to turn every painful thing in our lives in due time on their ears. That's our hope. That's our faith. That is what we celebrate this morning with songs of praise and adulation. Adoration. We worship you and we love you. Amen.